not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And today on the show, I am going to be talking with a author. His name is William Shaberg, and his book is called The Writing of the Big Book, The Creation of AA. And we will get to his interview in just a moment. I also want to give you a little bit of an update on the book that I'm working on personally. It's called The Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide. I've given myself a nearly impossible deadline to have it ready by the 1st of, of November, which is just a few slides leaps away and uh, it feels like university all over again to be working up against crunch time but um, it's good for me I love a tight deadline and I should have that ready for you so you'll you'll see the fireworks over Canada as I get that book launched because I'm going to be so happy to get it done Um, And I'm really excited to get it out to you. And just so you know, it is a little bit of a fundraiser for this show. As you may have noticed, I have removed ads from this program and ads are gone off of my Unpickled website as well. And my hope is that um, publications like this one can help to offset the cost of the hosting on the website. Also, the things like membership renewals um, and the um, subscription to Blog Talk Radio and the annual fees for the dot com, that kind of thing. So there's just a bit of fees associated in running a program like this. I volunteer my time. I'm happy to do that. But my hope is that the book sales will offset the costs of running this show. So if you have been helped by the Bubble Hour, I really would really appreciate it if you would be kind enough to pick up a copy for yourself or for someone else, because um, that will help me keep this show going. I also want to share with you an exchange that I had with a listener to this show. This is tough. So I, I get a lot of emails and I and I do my best to help people as much as I can or to at least direct them to someone who can help them. And one message that I got last week, and this does happen, the, I responded to it and the person confessed that they didn't remember writing it because they were blackout drunk when they wrote it. That's not unusual. That does happen. And I'm sure there are listeners of this program who even recall days when they would open their phone and see who they texted or emailed the night before. But I do want to share with you my response to that listener, what I hoped, you know, that maybe the morning after would be a great time to make a change. So this is what I wrote back. It's the morning after, and I'm hoping you're feeling motivated to make today the day of change. As the day wears on, your resolve to change will wear down as the cycle of daily withdrawal, also known as afternoon and evening cravings, starts to pull you back. If you plan ahead, you can do something differently when your body tells you that it's time to give it the daily dose of alcohol. Your brain will work very hard to convince you that it is either super important to have a drink or that it is no big deal, and you might as well have a drink. But either way, it is manipulation. It's a manipulation tactic to get you to supply the antidote to withdrawal. 
You have spent a long time training your brain to do this and it will take a while to reprogram it so be patient and determined. You can use sugar to help negate the cravings that can trick your brain and give you a little hit of good feelings. You can go to sleep and try to wake them out and just get through the first few days. That's a good plan. And, uh, and then I went on to suggest to um, have a look at the online website in the rooms.org um, because this, this person was not quite ready to make a change and, and they weren't quite ready to go to a meeting, very resistant to that. But suggested to just observe a meeting online. The website is called intherooms.org and you can actually listen in. There are real AA meetings that are taking place in real time. So it's a virtual AA meeting and uh, you can either participate or you can just listen in. And that can help build the courage to get help in one form or another or to go to an actual meeting. And what I had pointed out to this person is the stages of change are pre-contemplation, when you don't know there's a problem, contemplation, when you're aware that there's a problem but you're not really ready to do anything, preparation, when you start looking into what your options are and what you could do to make a change, action, when you make the change, and then maintenance to support the change that you've made. Those are sort of the, the changes of stages of change. And so when we actually looked at this model, it was easy to see that this person has actually moved through of the of the five stages, this person has moved to the third stage, the preparation stage. And really, that is forward movement. So I just want to encourage anyone that's listening and that's frustrated and that's had a million day ones and is feeling frustrated about it to look at where you're at in that stage of change and understand that you can keep moving forward and that it's okay to spend a while in the preparation stage and keep working towards the action stage and everything you do to build yourself forward is going to help you move through that trajectory. So listener, you know who you are and anyone that's mustering up the courage to change, I just encourage you to stick with it and keep moving forward. So now we are going to join my conversation with author William Schaeberg who wrote Writing the Big Book, The Creation of AA. It challenges many of AA's creation myths and tells a month-by-month -month story of what actually happened between October 1937 when the idea of a book was first proposed and April 1939 when it was finally published. Please enjoy my chat with William Schaeberg. William, hello, and welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you very much, and I very much appreciate the invitation. I'm glad to have you, and I think this is something that will be quite an interest to a lot of our listeners, regardless of their program involvement, um, just because this is such a part of our culture, and um, the, the idea of the program of AA is really kind of a, a vernacular within our culture. Everyone sort of has an idea of blank anonymous, you know, meaning abstinence from a something. So I think that by and large, we all feel like we know a little something about the program, but not very many people that aren't in the program know what the big book is. So let me ask you, what is the big book and what is its importance within the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The big book is a book called Alcoholics Anonymous that was first published on April 10, 1939. 
and it's remained largely unchanged except for the stories in the back of the book. There's two sections to the book. There's the exposition in the front. There's eight. There's 11 chapters of exposition. Uh, most of that has remained unchanged since the book was published in 39. Uh, the back half of the book is taken up with um, typically 25 to 30 stories, uh, and there's been four editions of, of the big book, uh, and each edition they've changed and updated the stories in the back. So there's four different sets of stories for the four editions. But the big book was um, written, it was conceived in October of 1937, was the first time they said, hey, we should write a book. And 18 months later, they published this book called Alcoholics Anonymous, which lays out the principles of um, their approach to recovery. How do you go about securing recovery? And the, the central uh, chapter in that book is a, a chapter called How It Works, Chapter 5, where the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are articulated. Uh, and the chapters before and after Chapter 5 um, give a fuller explication of, uh, of those 12 steps and how to go about working them. How long was the program in existence before the book was created? Well, that's a, it's an interesting question, but the, the word program um, kind of implies that they had a formula and they were working it and they were working it and working it, and then they finally wrote down what they'd been doing. That really wasn't the case. Um, Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous and the man who wrote almost all of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, he called the period between the day that he got sober in mid-December of 1934 and the day the book was published – when there are about 100 people sober at that point, he called that period the flying blind period. They were, just, they were just trying all kinds of different things to see what worked and what didn't work. When people drank, it clearly didn't work. And when people stayed sober, that was something that might be recommended to other people to help them stay sober. Um, the steps themselves weren't actually com committed to paper. Wilson wrote the steps for the very first time in the first week of December 1938, just a few months before the book was published. One of, one of the contentions of my book is that uh, the title is the writing, writing the Big Book, colon, The Creation of AA. Uh, I don't think there was anything you can properly call a program of Alcoholics Anonymous until after April 10, 1939, when those 12 steps saw the light of day for the very first time publicly. And uh, and, you know, went out into the world spreading that particular message of how to stay sober. Uh, before that, it was a flying blind period. There was a lot of interesting things going on, a lot of arguments going on, a, a lot of people coming in and going back out again. Um, it, was, it was just a wonderfully, wonderfully fascinating time, which is basically what my book's about. I think it, it makes for just a, uh, an outstandingly readable and compelling story. So what prompted you to explore the origins of this book? Have you always been fascinated with that period of history? No, not particularly. I'm a rare book dealer. That's what I do for a living. Um, I'm in Connecticut, and uh, I specialize in uh, first edition philosophy works and also psychology works, which gets me into the AA stuff. Uh, and uh, I bought a bought a before the book was published in April of '39. Two months before that, they they offset printed uh, several copies of the what they were hoping to print for for circulation, so that people could take a look at it and make corrections. Um, and 
I bought one of those multilith copies, one of those pre-publication copies at auction. And as a rare book dealer, I needed to know how many copies had been printed. How rare was it? And when I looked at the secondary literature, some people said 100, some said 200, 300, 400. Uh, I was confused. So I finally got permission to go down to the AA archive in New York City, and I was looking for that invoice. I knew it was for $165 because that appeared in a later document that was online. But I, I, I was just trying to find out how many copies had been printed so I could uh, gauge the rarity. And uh, I never found that invoice, but I did get sucked into the story as I did more and more research trying to answer my basic question. I started getting fascinated with other questions. And that led me to this entire tome that I wrote. You know, they call it the big book. When my book came, it was, uh, <clears throat> I, I, I put it next to one of those first edition, first printings, and it was just a little bit larger. So my wife, the lady Sarah, is calling it the bigger book on the big book. <laughs> the bigger book about the big book. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, as a rare book dealer, do you have people that are, um, you know, that the, the big book is, is, a, is a treasured book for people that are in the program. And um, I know people that they treat it the way some people treat the Bible. I mean, they have a special case for it and they really treasure it. So do you have people coming in looking for sort of special rare editions of that book? Yes, very much so. I've sold, sold a number of uh, copies over the years. There were 16 printings of the first edition between 1939 and 1954 or 55. I always get the, the date wrong without looking it up. And uh, they, I've sold a number of copies over the years of that. I've got some copies online at the moment. Um, and, you know, there are people who want to buy the book itself, and they're happy just to have the book. Other people are more like standard 20th century book collectors. They want the copy of the book and a really nice copy of the original dust jacket that goes with it. That can sometimes double and even triple the price of a book. And then there's other people who want the book and the dust jacket and signed by a primary uh, mover and shaker in early Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson or Dr. Bob or some other personage. Ah, and you even can track down something as rare as that. That's fascinating. So I'm curious now about your research, what you learned as you were examining the origins of this book, and does your research conflict with any sort of previous understandings about the book's origins, and why it's important? Oh, yes. My book certainly conflicts with other stories told about the book's origins. The first chapter of my book is called Challenging the Creation Myths, and each of the 30 chapters that follow that first chapter uh, is uh, bringing up some primary documents that, that tell a contrary or, or a different story to the stories that were traditionally told. Um, I, I had a little difficulty with that in the beginning. I mean, first of all, it was, it was kind, of, kind of fascinating that, that I was getting this different story. Uh, but then there was a real consistency to it. And it took me a while to realize that most of those stories came from Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there were stories that he told primarily in the 1950s and the 1960s. Articles he wrote were also done in the 50s and the 60s. And um, it took me a while to realize that Wilson just wasn't a historian. Wilson wasn't even trying to be a historian. It just wasn't on his radar whatsoever. Bill Wilson was a salesman who was trying to sell sobriety to suffering alcoholics. 
so he removed all kinds of messy details from his stories. He uh, he was and he also knew he had a big ego. So he he always took his own involvement and his his the credit that he should have been gotten uh, right out of the stories. Uh, there was a number of uncomfortable facts about the way things happened. Those all got dropped out of the stories. He had a terrible memory for dates. And and what he did when he when he made all that that all those different morphs, all those different changes in the stories, what he was really shooting for, and what we ended up with, when you get Bill Wilson's version of early AA as a bunch of parables and even myths about what happened, how people got sober, and how they got to the place where they were. And I, you know, at one point I struggled a bit with that uh, because Wilson's such an iconic figure. So many people just absolutely. Uh, revere him. But the fact of the matter was, you know, Bill Wilson was a man of vision. He had a a grand and a universal, a deeply spiritual and life-saving vision. And what Wilson was doing was trying to to really sell that. So he was telling stories that caught people's attention and it conveyed in pithy, short phrases and paragraphs a point that he was trying to make. He He wasn't trying to be historically accurate. He saw no need to be historically accurate. It wasn't his project. His project was to help people get sober. You know, Bill Wilson, at, at this, especially at this time of his life, early years, he was almost messianic. He, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't preaching salvation in the next world. Bill Wilson was preaching salvation in this world, in the here and now. And that's what he did with the stories he was telling. They just can't be accepted as history without cross-checking with primary documents. And that's what my book does. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And so as parables and myths, it sounds like you're sort of unpacking those parables and myths and finding the truths behind them. And in doing so, were you able to sort of shed some light on, well, why, why he made the choices that he did or or what the benefit of that is? It sounds like it was to really shine a light on the lesson. Do you feel like that was successful and important? Oh, it was completely important. Um, and it was successful. There's two million plus people sober in Alcoholics Anonymous today, and this is 80 years after the book was published. That was very, he was very successful. But yeah, he he did it with with regularity and and with 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 conscious intent. In Bill's story, the first chapter in the book, uh, he tells about uh, the 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 first incipient moment in in what I think of as the the process and the evolution of Alcoholics Anonymous. His friend Ebby Thatcher calls him up and says he wants to come over, and Bill says, come on over. Bill's drinking. Ebby comes over. They sit across the kitchen table. Bill offers Ebby a drink. Ebby says, thank you. I'm not drinking. I'm sober. Bill says, how could that be possible? You and I have been getting drunk for years. And Ebby says, I got religion. So they have a conversation, and Wilson feels bad for his friend and also thinks maybe he should be doing something along those lines, and that's the end of that story. There's a number of recordings where Ebby Thatcher, the man on the other side of the table, tells his version of that story. He calls up and Bill doesn't answer. Lois, Bill's wife, answers. And they make a date not to just sit across the kitchen table, but for dinner uh, several days in advance. And when Ebby shows up, there's no one else there. But he finally gets let in and Bill shows up. Bill's been drinking. Uh, they have dinner. Bill and Ebby and uh, and Lois, and oh, the woman who's renting out the top floor of the brownstone they live in, she comes down, the four of them have dinner. After dinner, they go up to the parlor. Lois finally says, so Ebby, tell us what's going on with you. And Ebby starts telling the story about how he got sober through the Oxford group and he's not drinking anymore. After two hours, Wilson walks him off to the subway, throws his arm around him, says, I don't know what you got, kid, but I could really use a piece of that clearly. 
So what's the point of Wilson's story? Why would Wilson get rid of all those messy details? First of all, he'd lose people's attention as he was telling the story. They wouldn't, they wouldn't follow through the whole thing. But more important than that is the story that Bill told uh, exemplifies and brings to the fore and underlines in italics and bold a central belief of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that is that the message of recovery is best delivered by one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic, one-on-one. Not a doctor talking to you, not a psychiatrist talking to you, not your minister talking to you. The, 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 the message of recovery is best delivered one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic, and that's the point of the story that Bill told, and it's crystal clear when he told that story. Ah, I see. So it's really, it's not a matter of changing the truth. It's a matter of editing the truth to make it more easily digestible. Sure. And, and more prominent and more, you know, in the front of your brain. I mean, when Ebby told that, there's a couple of great recordings of him telling the story in the early 50s. And one time Bill Wilson was even there. And Ebby says, look, I know that's not the story you've read in the book. You know, it's this hallowed, it's a hallowed story in Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, I know it's not the story you read in the book, but, but, you got to remember, first of all, one of us was sober that night and one of us was drunk. So who are you going to <laughs> And the second thing he says is, but the point is the same. And the point is the same. The point is that Bill heard the message from another guy who had been a drunk and wasn't drinking anymore. That's the point of the story. And maybe he's clear that that's exactly what happened that night. But you got to get rid of all the baggage to make that crystal clear. Bang, right? You know especially if you're talking to a guy who's got a little bit of a buzz on from drinking and he's having a really hard time, you know, just he's just trying to get over the night before kind of thing. You're trying to get that guy's attention. You've got to hit him right between the eyes. And Wilson's stories repeatedly did that. They hit people right between the eyes. That's, that's what he was trying to do. That was his project. His project was not to produce a historically accurate text. That was my mm-hmm. job. That was my project. So now here we are, 80 years later, as you say, and do you believe that the big book is is now used as it was intended? Has its use and meaning changed over time? Well, I think it certainly worked in the way Wilson intended it to work. As I said, we've got over, there's over 2 million people sober in Alcoholics Anonymous these days. But um, the, the book is severely dated in many, many ways. I mean, I've spent a lot of time with this book, not just the chapters as they appeared in in, in April or, or as they appeared in the Multilith in, in February of 39, but as some there's some early versions that were written in May and June of 38, and I've been over those things. Some of the language is just tortured. Some of it's a very colloquial 1938 language, um, and, and there's, there's just all kinds of uh, cultural baggage that comes with it. There's a chapter called Two Wives. Uh, so the presumption is that the man's an, an alcoholic and the, and the woman isn't. And, uh, and the, the social uh, understanding of a wife's part in a relationship is just, it's, 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 it's neolithic, you know? It's just, it's, it's 1930 stuff. But of course, women, in 1938, women, women had only had to vote for 18 years for, that's, it's, those things need to be changed. Wilson, uh, there's a couple of wonderful letters from the 50s where one a guy said, uh, "Could you are you thinking about changing the book?" And Wilson said, he he firmly believed that it was frozen, and that if he tried to change a single word, he'd be excommunicated from AA. So he tried to. In that letter, he said, "I'm writing another book," and that turned into a book called The Twelve and Twelve, The Twelve Traditions and the Twelve uh, Twelve Steps and the Twelve Traditions that came out in the mid 50s. 
And then he wrote another letter. Somebody asked him something a couple of years after that book came out. And he again said, the text is frozen. And even that new book, I've, that's become frozen already. And, and, and he was not happy with that. I think if Bill Wilson was around today, he'd sit down and write a completely different book because it's, I, it seems desperately needed to me if AA is going to make it into the 22nd century. That's fascinating. So it sounds as though the book is so beloved and, and well, and I think leaned on so heavily by people who really cherish what it offers them in their recovery that they're resistant to seeing any changes made to it. So much so that even if Bill Wilson himself wanted to make changes, he felt he couldn't. So this leads me to wonder what kind of feedback you've received from folks in the AA community to your work. Well, Gene, the only people who've really seen the book so far were uh, eight uh, different AA historians uh, who read it before publication and offered suggestions and corrections. Those people were all positive, but it was really because this is this is honestly the first scholarly work done in Alcoholics Anonymous early history since Ernie Kurtz wrote a book in the late 70s, 40 years ago. Uh, Ernie published Not God, where he had spent a lot of time in the archives, and it was well footnoted. Ernie was a Harvard-trained historian. It was his doctoral dissertation enlarged. Um, most of the things that have been written, even by people who are good historical researchers, there's a fellow named Mel Barger who's written a bunch of books, but there's no, there's no uh, what we call scholarly apparatus. There's no, there's no citations. There's no footnotes. You, you can't find where the, where the guy got his information or the woman got her information. My book, on the other hand, has uh, 1,560 notations in the back on sources. If you want to know where that came from, you have a little number and it's in the back. And then there's over 400 uh, footnotes with a, with, when there's additional information, not just a citation, but additional kind of tangential information. I put it at the bottom of the page so you don't have to keep flipping back and forth. The point is, this is a scholarly take, and uh, it's been long, long, long overdue. So the thoroughness of your research begs the question, how long did it take you to write this book? I started, I've, I researched for 11 years. And I wrote for the last seven of those 11 years. Now, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm running a book business, a rare book business, and uh, I have an active life and a wife, and uh, there's a lot going on here in Fairfield, Connecticut. So it took me all that time. But you know, it was 11 years of research with uh, seven years overlapping of writing. And then actually the lady Sarah and I uh, polished that book and double-checked it for almost a year before it went to the pre-publication readers. This is fascinating. So did you feel a little like a private detective, and were you obsessed with your mission? <laughs> private detective is exactly what it was. One of the things, I did a presentation to an AA group out in California a couple of weeks ago, and I, the name of the, on the PowerPoint was a detective in the archive. It's just, a, you know, you're going around, you're finding all these all these jigsaw puzzle pieces, and, and, and they they. they some of them fit together really well, and other ones just don't seem to go together. But you've got to make them go together. There has to be some explanation that accounts for all those different bits and pieces and tells a comprehensive and most especially a credible story. And, yeah, a lot of times I felt like, uh, you know, when I was a kid, we used to play that card game Clue, you know. And I was like, oh, it's Professor Plum, and he's in the library with a revolver, you know. It was that sort of a thing. It was really gratifying that when I got back comments from these eight pre-publication readers that two of them specifically said that they enjoyed the book immensely and it read like a detective novel. Yeah. yeah. Good. And so was, as you did your research, was there anything that 
really took you by surprise or anything you wanted to find and couldn't? Those are both great questions. The most important thing that came out of my research, the most important thing was that uh, the second most important man in the process of writing this book, the first being Bill Wilson, was a man named Hank Parkhurst, who was Bill Wilson's right-hand man in New York City. He would, the two of these guys were just joined at the hip, and Hank was always pushing Bill Wilson to write stuff, most especially so it could help them raise money. But but because they had all these grand plans that they wanted to do with a chain of hospitals across the country and paid missionaries to spread the word. But the book was going to be the source of, of the cash because they couldn't get any money from the philanthropists at that point. So Hank was always pushing, always pushing. The second most important man, in my opinion, in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous is Hank Parkhurst. And today, most people don't know Hank Parkhurst at all in AA. You mentioned to him, they're like, who's he? Who's he? The guy doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. And yet... I tell people, no Hank, no book. And that's really the truth. There would never have been a never have been a book published in April of nineteen thirty nine called Alcoholics Anonymous. It wasn't for Hank Parkhurst. But no nobody knows about Hank. Why doesn't anybody know about Hank? Because six months after the book was published, Hank was drunk and he never got sober again. So mm. it was one of those uncomfortable facts. You can't be touting Hank Parkhurst and say, Oh yeah, but it didn't work for him. It didn't work for him. Um, they were, and you talked about blank spots. There's a couple of great blank spots, things that I would just love to know more about that I don't. At one point in late 1930, I mean, early 1939, Hank's wife threw him out and he went and lived in Brooklyn with Bill and Lois for 10 weeks. So January, February into March, when this book was being put together, when the multilith copy was being printed, these guys weren't exchanging pieces of paper back and forth. They weren't writing each other letters or memos which we have from other times, they're just sitting at the, at the kitchen table at Bill's house talking about stuff. So there's this blank hole of, of 10 weeks where there's almost no information coming out of these two guys in terms of what they're talking about between themselves. Other people report on what they were talking about, but I don't, don't get that full sense. Um, the other great thing is there's at the, that's at the back end of the story. The front end of the story takes place in, in, in Akron, Ohio, in October of 1937, when they first say, hey, we should write a book. And uh, Lois kept diaries most of her life, sometimes spotty, sometimes very complete. 1937's a mishmash. And and so Lois has these two pages of great stuff on, oh, we got picked up here at this time, and they took us here, and we went there, and then we stayed there, and then we picked up this guy, and then we got to Akron. Then there's five pages missing from the days where this 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 tremendously important meeting happened in Akron where they decided to write a book. And and then the next page, it shows up in her diary. It says, oh, oh, yeah, and then so-and-so drove us back to New Jersey, and we had breakfast here, and we got on the subway and went back home. And uh, I have no idea. What, there was actually 70 pages torn out of the 1937 diary, the only one that has any pages torn out of it, randomly throughout. But those, I would just, I would love to know what Lois Wilson wrote about this meeting in Akron, Ohio, in mid-October of 1937, when they decided to write a book for the first time. But they're gone. And I can speculate, but it's just pure speculation of why she would have torn those pages out. Were her diaries published and you were able to access published versions of her diaries, or did you somehow come across the original documents? 
The original documents are at the Stepping Stones. Uh, Bill Wilson's house in Westchester, Connecticut, just north of New York mm-hmm. City, is called Stepping Stones, and they have an archive there. And Lois's original diaries are there. The AA archive down in has um, transcripts of those. I've compared them, by the way. I've, you know, I've cited, typed up what's on the ones up at stones and then gone down to check them against the transcripts that that were made by other people and are now at the archives in new york yeah yeah her diaries are fabulously fascinating there's there's just wonderful wonderful stories and details in there i think my favorite story is in june of 1938 now bill's just written two chapters and they're out trying to get money for the book and you know they're really doing a full court press on this thing and she says bill and i had a fight and he ran out to get drunk but instead of drinking, he went over to his friend Hank Parker's house. I mean, alcoholics are not. If Bill Wilson had had a drink and gotten drunk in June of 1938, none of those two million people that are sober today are likely to be around. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's just. There's a number of those things in this very human retelling of the story of how the program evolved and came to fruition in the printing of the book in April of 39. There's just these these heart stopping things that that were could have gone completely off the rails, and it didn't. And that 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 one particular day, I don't remember the exact day in Lois's diary, but yeah, Bill went out. Bill got so upset with his with his wife, he ran out to have a drink, and then decided not to do it. Yes, to know that when she wrote that, she had no idea how important it was that he didn't that he didn't get <laughs> that drink. When we're reading it now and knowing everything that came after, it's pretty interesting. So who do you hope uh, will read your book, and what do you hope they will take away from it? Well, that's, I, I think there's a broad audience for this book in a, in a bunch of different niches. I mean, one of the things is there, people have such preconceptions about what AA is. It's amazing. I stumble over it all the time when I talk to people. They have they they know what AA is, and they'll tell you, and it's not like what AA is at all. So, one of the things I would I would hope is that uh, the book might become uh, popular enough, be be enough of a page turner read. I think it's a page turner read. I've had people tell me it's a page turner read. That it would become popular enough that maybe we could get some doctors and psychiatrists and and uh, people in 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 the recovery industry who aren't really in AA to read this book to get a better understanding about what Alcoholics Anonymous message truly truly is. And then of course I I, I think I think people who are in AA are going to be you know the story that Bill Wilson told this glossy kind of spiritual kind of story um, is is a story of, of a miraculous thing, how this thing came together and came about and, and became successful. I think the very human um, week by week, month by month story that I tell based on primary documents is way more miraculous, way more impressive, way more exciting to read than uh, than all of those canonical stories that have been handed down uh, since the 1950s and the 1960s. And I think anybody who's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous reading this book could have nothing but uh, uh, an infusion of uh, pride to be a part of such a fabulous and uh, amazing and miraculous organization. Well, tell us how our listeners can find you and order your book. My book, uh, I, I have a website, uh, www.writingthebigbook.com. Pretty simple because that's part, main part of the title of the book, writingthebigbook.com. Uh, anyone who goes there will find uh, a, a table of contents. 
There's a sample chapter, chapter eight on uh, the chapter in the book uh, called There is a Solution. There's uh, copies of the eight different pre-publication reviews. There's a little bio on me, and there's uh, we're gonna we're gonna have a little site on appearances I'll be making around the country to talk about the book. And uh, there's also a couple of uh, icons, one for Amazon, one for Barnes and Noble, and one for the publisher, Central Recovery Prints. And you can click on and order the book. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us about your book. I wish you all the best, and thank you for sharing the story with us today. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a great, great time. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with William Shaberg, author of Writing the Big Book. And again, his website is www.writingthebigbook.com. And uh, I know that listeners to this program come from all pathways to recovery, myself included. But I really think it's, it is interesting to know where things come from and what some of the history of this movement is, even if it is a pathway or a patchwork that you don't happen to be using in your personal line of recovery. Uh, we're all in it together. And the more we understand each other and the way that we're all doing it, I think the stronger we are as a recovery community. That's all for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take good care. I own it, I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me In a dark corner is where shame likes to hide We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays and wait there Rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you say old I did that Not proud but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Shout it out on Main Street to be clear. You don't need to whisper to confession them ears. The person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror. And the one who matters most can always hear. When you say old, different, not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back. Just want to be free from the power Oh, you said I'm free When you said oh, I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free